Women Wanting Women, a podcast where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, Jordana Michelle, lesbian love coach and matchmaker extraordinaire. You can learn more about me at jordanamichelle.com, where you will also find amazing free resources like my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a guide to the five biggest mistakes that most women make when coming out, And since I'm such a great matchmaker, and I might already be friends with the woman of your dreams, I'm also offering everyone a free survey you can fill out so that I can keep you in mind as I meet amazing women just like you through the work that I'm doing in our community. All of this is free at jordanamichelle.com. But in the meantime, I'm curious if you know the number one thing all female animals in nature are attracted to. Do you think the answer to this question might be able to teach us anything about how women like us can have more success meeting and attracting the women that we want to date? Well, my guest on this podcast episode is going to share with us the answer to these questions, and they might surprise you. My guest, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin, is an animal behaviorist, and she specializes in social and mating behavior. You know, the thing about our behavior human behavior, is that we can easily take it for granted because we're too close to it. You know how we can look in the mirror sometimes and notice that our hair is too long even though we didn't notice it while it was growing each day slowly? It's like how most fish probably don't realize that they're swimming in water. When we're too close to something, we can't see it enough to properly examine it and understand it. And that's what human behavior is like for us. And that's what's so cool about animal behaviorists. They study the way other creatures behave, which gives us contrast and a broader perspective to see how our own human behavior that we otherwise miss is different. Like if you see a picture of yourself from 10 years ago, you can realize, oh wow, I've aged a lot, because the old picture gives perspective, but looking in the mirror day after day, we can't see it as we're changing. Now this podcast, this is a podcast about women dating women. So the focus of this interview is on female behavior. In this episode, I interview my guest, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin, about the ways that females behave around other females throughout all the natural world. And we talk about the strategies that females evolved with to attract potential mates and what it is that attracts females in nature and how creatures make themselves more attractive to the females they want to make with, mate with. And we talk about how females compete with each other to get what they want. Deep down, we're all animals, and all of this applies to women like us. It's a conversation I was really excited to get to have. These are questions I had been wanting to ask an animal behaviorist for a long time, and Dr. Verdelin is so knowledgeable and so much fun to talk to, so the interview was a blast and really enlightening. But before we dive into the interview, I want to give you a little bit more background about Dr. Verdelin and the work that she does. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is a scientist, an author, and a speaker. She's an expert in animal behavior, specializing in social and mating behavior. Her work has been featured in everything from NPR's All Things Considered and The State of Things and National Geographic and the BBC and the Smithsonian, and she's written for Scientific American and many other amazing present uh, publications that are way too many for me to list. 
Currently, she has an appointment as a lecturer at the University of Redlands and as an adjunct professor at Duke University in the biology department. Her two books are Wild Connections, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at RealDrJen and on Facebook at What's Your Wild Connection. And check out her website at JenniferVerdelin.com. I have links below in the show notes for all of those. Um, so definitely go check her out. And now here is the interview. I hope you have as much fun listening as I had being a part of the conversation myself. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? So excited for our talk. Thanks so Me much. Too. Oh no, the, I've been looking forward to this, and um, and I just uh, I'm I'm really happy to be able to do this with you. Yeah, absolutely. So you were a lawyer in your past life. How interesting. Yeah, I was an unhappy lawyer, and um, just wanted to you know I always knew that there, I had my own firm, so I've always been like creative and entrepreneurial. But my heart was calling me to do something a little bit more. And what's funny is. I was single and lonely for a very long time. And during mm -hmm. that time, I would listen to podcast, like relationship podcasts, relationship advice stuff. And since I was a lesbian, I'd sort of do the girl stuff. I'd listen to the girls. Right. And then I'd listen to the dudes, you know, but the whole time I was like, you know, I just wish someone would do this for lesbians. Um, and so then one day I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do this. And so that's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So, so this is the first time that I've been, uh, it's not the first time that this topic has come up, uh, particularly when I go out and give talks. It's interesting uh, how it, it almost always comes up, but it comes up in this context of, you know, do you ever see this in animals? And it's, it's, there's a, you know, there's a layer of, so is it natural, uh, right? Uh, underneath, right? Yeah. Where people are always asking that uh, question. And uh, because we use, you know, I use animals to talk about all kinds of interesting behaviors that apply to humans. It's wonderful because there's an opportunity to talk about it without anybody getting, you know, upset. Because who's going to be upset at a at a flower beetle? Totally, totally. Or whiptail right. lizards getting it on the way. Right. To oh, I know. About. I love that. They're sexing it up. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, so I agree with you. There, I feel like there are two important questions that, okay. um, that like, not like for you, I just mean in general, two questions that have like come up for me. And the standard question, as you totally just said, when it comes to homosexuals or uh, same sex relationships in general is like, is this natural? Does this happen in nature? You know, are animals doing this too? because almost that would either validate or otherwise invalidate it depending on which right. camp you're coming from right and that's the main question for me I don't even you know it is what it is I'm 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 a lesbian I love women I I, I love men too as humans I just can't I'm not physically attracted to them um, but right. a lot of my best friends are guys I'm totally down with dudes just not in a physical or romantic way but um but what's funny is to me, since it's sort of like I am what I am, the question I have then is like more about like what I learned from these dating and relationship coaches. You know, you hear right. women like you getting on podcasts, doctors like you, scientists, and you're talking about animals and you're talking about the way that they are in nature. And a lot of it is about how males are attracting females and what females are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I think is interesting is sort of for, for women like me or women in same-sex relationship, this opportunity to pick your brain and say, okay, so like 
you know, what are, first of all, what are females attracted to? Because I obviously, or now I'm in, in a very happy relationship, but at the time I wanted to be more attractive as in, you know, using my femaleness, you know, what do females right. do to become more attractive? And then on the other side is, you know, um, what, what are females attracted to, you know, cause we kind of have to like be and do <laughs> at the same time. Right. Um, and I think it's fascinating and I just would, and I haven't ever heard anyone take this side and like have this conversation in this way. Um, and I'm just so excited to have, you know, a, an animal behaviorist I respect yeah. to like sit here and start with. So, um, thank you. For so, sure. Um, so what is it, you know, just to, so that everyone understands, like, what is it, what do you do? What is it, what does it mean to be an animal behaviorist? Is that the right way to state your position? Yeah. That uh, so that's how I, that's what I call myself. There's other, other terms that, that people can use like behavioral ecologist or, you know, but, uh, for, for me, that, that means I'm not like a, a person who studies dog or cat behavior, right? And can help, I can help you solve your dog or cat behavior problem. But I study, I study animals in the wild and I'm really looking at questions that have to do with why they behave in ways that they do and how can we explain that? And what are the challenges that they're facing and what are the solutions to those challenges that they use to be successful? And so, I've been doing that for a really long time, and and then about five years ago, I started realizing that you know, well, they have many of the same challenges that we do, and how are how are we? What tools are we using to overcome the, and and cope or be successful in the environments that we have? And and can we learn anything from how animals go about doing that? Because some of these issues are identical, uh, and. When I started looking at that, I started realizing that sometimes, you know, culture and, and society and, and oftentimes even religion really drive a lot of our behaviors and have divorced us or separated us from perhaps acting in ways that will give us the outcome we say we want. That's so interesting. Solutions. So there are these solutions that have existed in nature for all these years and we're not seeing them because um, we're buying into these contrived structures based on culture. I never thought of it right. that way. Yeah, and yet I think if we that... look to the animals, they might have better solutions to the outcomes that we want. Right. And that the key is, you know, there's all kinds of behaviors out there in nature. And so it's not to say that, oh, because this happens in nature, that means it's good and morally correct. You know, the outcome for that particular species may not be the same outcome that we want. If, for example, regardless of type, if you want a successful cooperative monogamous relationship, there are certain behaviors that go along with that. Um, and then if you want a more competitive, um, promiscuous type of interaction with same sex or opposite sex or both sexes, there are certain behaviors that go along with that. But you can't act in one way and expect a different outcome. So that's where I try to shed light on, okay, if we say we want certain types of relationships, what, what animals have those relationships? How do they structure them? What do they do? How do they deal with some of the issues and challenges that come up in those relationships? And can we learn anything from that? Oh, that's fascinating. I, I, um, I love the way you're putting this. And um, now when I go back, if I reread your book again, Wild Connections, I'll I'll really be seeing your perspective from a whole new light because I was sort of um, like coming from like my angle, but I really love this. I think it's so interesting. Great. Um, thank you. So um, 
in terms of, see, what's funny for me is kind of my, I, I had a different perspective and my perspective was that, okay, like birds, lizards, elephants, right? They mm-hmm. might be these completely different creatures today, but 10 million years ago, we were all some other, like there was a, our grand, great, 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 great grandparents were this other sort of like organism. And then mm-hmm. like their grandchildren's grandchildren, grandchildren's became birds. And then the others became lizards and we became humans and other ones became elephants. And sort of that's why our behavior was relevant to each other. But I really understand yours makes way more sense because the conditions have changed. We're not living in the same environment as the lizard. So the things that we want, of course, are shaped by the needs of the kinds of creatures we've become. Well, yeah, and, and, and you're not far off, though, from, from your, your – uh, the other perspective also holds. I Meaning we do have a shared relationship um, with other species. We have a shared history. Uh, they are our relatives, some more distant than others. But we can have a very distant relationship but live in very similar environments, and so we can converge on the same solutions. So two very different species, uh, a prairie vole and an albatross, uh, both have a monogamous uh, uh, si- uh, types of relationships, right? They have evolved to have monogamy as the dominant form of pair bonding in their systems, but they're, comp- they're one is a bird and one is a rodent, right? One is a mammal. And so why, the interesting thing and one of the things that someone like me does is try to look at what are those conditions that create such a similar system in very different species. That's a great question. Um, yeah. And I love it. But now let's go back to girl stuff because that's what okay. we're here to talk about. Um, all right. So let's just talk about um, what females are attracted to. What do females want? Because we, we like women who like women, we want to attract females to us. So right. what do females in nature um, feel attracted to? Well, so it depends. One thing, uh, you know, a lot of times we think about this, obviously, in terms of you know, uh, or at least historically in the sciences, it's been thought of, okay, females are looking for males, but what they're really looking for are resources, um, is one thing. And that resource could be, you know, uh, territory. So we could call it currency in our system, right? Uh, that could be a house, uh, a nice house or whatever we define as resources, uh, it could also be the resources could be status, right? So gaining in social status. Um, I, I love this and I really want to um, get into, I'm so interested in, in like, why would an animal, what does that mean for an animal? Social status, you know, like popularity, oh. like let's get into that. What does that even, you well, know? So there are benefits, so, you know, there are benefits that come with high social status, right? The, the primary benefit is, is increased access to resources and, um, dominance and control over others, if depending on the system. So higher social status individuals gain access to resources, say food quicker. So if you are a brown capuchin monkey and you are, or a baboon and you are a high ranking female, uh, you, and a high or a high ranking male, whichever you have, uh, for males, that means they'll have increased access to females. And for females, that means they'll have increased access to resources. They also might be attracted to individuals that could provide protection. That's kind of a resource. So in some systems, it's very important for females to be protected, usually from other males. 
females can do this by bonding together with females and sort of forming an alliance and a coalition. Um, bonobos do this, right? So I don't know if, how familiar you are with bonobos or, or your listeners, oh, but they're not- they're amazing, and I can't yeah. wait to. Uh, yeah, go for it. I love this. This is great. Let's yeah, do, let's hear it. So they're they're known as the apes from Venus, and. And they are considered a matriarchal society, so that means females are dominant over males, and there is a lot of female-female action going on in bonobos. There's a lot of action, period. Yeah, going they're, on. They're, they're just totally sexual, bisexual, and everything. Yes. Yeah, and and people have looked at this, and what we've what we've uncovered is that um, for uh, sex in this society is used to reduce tension, reduce conflict, reduce competition. Right. And so uh, among females, they can form an alliance. This is how they've basically been able to overthrow males, if you will, by forming these relationships and these pair bonds and, and these bonds with, with other females in the community. Uh, they are able to uh, dominate males. By withholding so, sex and being no, bond- no. no, no, they, they have sex with everybody. So they use sex to do this. But to, to reduce the competition with other females because females compete with each other for the things we were just oh, talking yes, about. Yes, yes, this makes it, so much sense. So it's the parent, it's the, what, what makes a matriarchal society is when women get together, not when they don't compete. Right. And so for, I feel like we just solved the world's problems. Like I feel like everything just changed. (laughs) Except, right. Except here's the thing. Uh, there's very few species that have been successful in eliminating or reducing female competition. And bonobos have done this by basically incorporating a lot of good touching. Oh, great. So we save the world from women loving women and pleasuring each other. I can't even handle how much I'm obsessed with this. But wait, we have to just go back, though, because I feel like there's so much. I want to get back to that because I was going to talk to you all about female competition in a second, and it's so important. But just getting back to what females are attracted to. So what I'm hearing from you is it's really about resources, and then it's about status. But again, status is about resources. And when right. it comes to dominance, again, dominance is about resources. So right. it's sort of, a, and, and when it's about protection, that's also about, so it's really about this self-preservation uh, and, and protecting yourself and making sure you have the food and shelter that you need. Right. And it's also about picking the mate that's going to best provide that for you. Now, that doesn't mean that physical attractiveness doesn't come into it because females are also pretty picky about their mates and they assess the quality of your ability to provide resources potentially based on how you look. I'm so there. What I love so much about just saying this stuff out loud or hate, I don't know whether, you know, we talked about the, when your first, um, premises that you say you base your work on is this idea that, you know, things happen a certain way in nature, but then it becomes in, if for lack of better words, not politically correct. Right. right. Um, right. and you know, we, we limit our, um, we, we limit our choices because we have these, uh, culturally contrived ideas and what could be less of a popular idea among the humans that I know than to mm-hmm. say that we judge each other based on popularity and looks. Right. But we do, this is the thing, right? We can say that, Oh no, we don't. I'm a much better human than this. And you know what? Maybe you are, but the reality is that well, the benefit is, the reason why this isn't a problem for humans, I think, or shouldn't be, is that there's so much diversity in what everybody likes. 
Uh, right. So I I'm not that. a totally. I mean, everybody is attracted to different looks, uh, and so this is the benefit we have over some other species. I mean, I would be hard pressed to tell the difference between two female cardinals, like in terms of which one was more attractive. <laughs> um, right. right? It, How but, do we judge that? They all look exactly the same to us, right? Right. They look the same to us, but I bet you to each other uh, and to males, uh, uh, they look very different, right? But to us, they look the same. When we look out at all the humans on the face of the earth, there's so much diversity in the way that we look, and there's so much diversity in what certain people find attractive. I, I wrote about this in Wild Connection. I have a friend of mine who she, any, any, anybody with a big nose, I mean, that just does it for her. That's it. Just That's awesome. a big nose. <laughs> I remember that. That's really, you're right. And there is, there's that, you know, some people like hipsters, some people like whatever. In, in our community, people, there's, you know, a huge distinction between women who like butch and femme. Some like both, but some people, some women I know have very strong preferences. Um, right. A, a friend of mine is like that. She, the more masculine a female might look, the more attractive she finds her. Totally. And some, it's the total opposite. I have a friend who is exactly, it's not only that the more masculine she looks, it's like if you're at all feminine, she would have been totally turned off. Um, right. So, and, and I think that we think that things have to be this way or that way. But on all of these things, whether we're talking about gender, whether we're talking about sexuality, whether we're talking about appearance, this is a spectrum. Uh, everything is on a spectrum and it's quite fluid. And uh, for, uh, there's so much diversity encapsulated in our own species that that I feel like it's a false um problem to say we we assess each other on looks and resources uh one you know and popularity because we do that number one and number two what i value and what i'm attracted to uh i have a friend we like totally different types of i'm i'm heterosexual and i like men and i'm attracted but i'm not attracted to all men uh and and totally. we're not attracted to the same types of men at all. Uh, and so I think that we get caught up a little bit in what culture and society tells us is attractive, that we forget um, that, that we really decide that and there is somebody for us. There's right, always totally somebody. not every um, not every female would prefer Brad Pitt necessarily. There are a lot of other guys that look very differently that are doing quite well. Um, right. And, um, so the fact that w people or females, uh, judge each other based on looks is not necessarily mean that everybody doesn't, isn't going to find love. Right. Um, and it doesn't have to be judged by that way. Okay. But, but what about status? Are there two ways, yeah. you know, is there diversity in status? Let's get to that. Uh, there's less diversity when it comes to status in terms of, of other species. So where status is a really important and provides um, a benefit for survival and success. Uh, there's less variation, um, you know, where where that will play a role. So, for example, in baboons, status matters tremendously. So, not just for males, but for females, and that's usually the case where you have a, a, a dominance ranking among females and. This is probably most pronounced in something like meerkats. People might be familiar with meerkats from Meerkat Manor. 
And there was a whole documentary following the drama of this, you know, troop or group of, of meerkats. And uh, you have a dominant pair. And it dominance and status is so important that if a, a subordinate female had had babies, the dominant female would kill them. Wow. So only so the being, dominant female in meerkats is allowed to have babies. That's right. And that happens wow. in some other species, too. But yeah, I, I, I know. I heard of male, like males killing the other, uh, if an, if a, if someone other than the alpha male got right. the females pregnant, they kill those babies, but I never heard of the female killing other females' babies. Actually, surprisingly, females, um, commit more killing of offspring of other females than males do collectively across species. Holy cow. What? Yeah, I know. I know. We always focus on male violence, but we never really focus on Female competition is ugly. Holy cow. And don't I know it. Um, another yeah, thing it that's gets bad. Uh, what's so interesting, and we are going to get back to competition because I still have. Actually, let's I just know. keep going. Let's stay with attraction because I have so much to ask you about competition. Um, so social status, what, like, how does it work then in nature? Let's talk about that because it's like easy to just talk about it like a thing as if we all know. Because everyone sure. really knew what it felt like to be 11 years old, to be in middle school. We all knew who the popular girls were. That's right. Um, but what, like, what is that? What's, let's, what is, let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so a lot of times in other species, it's passed down. If you are born to, uh, so in chimpanzees, if you are born to a high ranking female, you have automatic status. We see that same process happen, right? In humans. Um, if your family has high status with money, resources, reputation in the community, uh, you are protected, right? You can get away with a lot. Yeah. Um, and this also happens in uh, chimpanzees where, uh, and, and uh, baboons, where a young individual from a high-ranking family can basically torment a low-ranking individual from a low-ranking family. And if the parent of the low-ranking offspring tries to defend their kid, the high-ranking mom will come and settle it. <laughs> so, quote unquote, so, settle it. <laughs> right, which means you know the mom of the low-ranking one takes a pounding. So, so and is can, it because she's weaker? Why would she accept that? Like, is she? Oh, well. So why? So how does this form in the first place? So yeah, what's going on? This is really this is really interesting question. How it, it like who is in in what rank? Uh, this can depend on, again, like if you were born, it passes through generations sometimes. So there's a very well-known uh, matriarchal um, unit in, in the chimpanzees of Gombe studied by Jane Goodall for many years, Flo's family. Well, Flo's daughter, Fifi, then became the most dominant female, and her sons also went on to become the most dominant males. And you can have a shift in that, Let's say, if but why? Why did they go on to be? Was it that they were stronger, or they just what? Was it that well, Flo was so strong she whooped anyone who tried to get in their way? Like what kept the structure? Well, so the the structure, uh, so the stability of dominance. Think about it. If you, uh, it, it's very when we think about stress in humans, and I was I was talking about this recently. You know, sometimes being low ranking, as long as it's predictable, is not a bad place to be. It's it's the stress of not knowing where your status is. Right, because um, that's when the fights start. That's when people start beating each other up to figure it out. 
That's right. So you, you so, sort of stay where you belong, uh, then there's no, is that right. what you're saying? If you keep the, yeah, if you keep the status quo or if the status quo stays and it's not constantly shifting, it's very costly to challenge someone higher ranking than you. We see this in all kinds of human interactions. Uh, and so, so once that, but how that dominance gets established, it can depend on um, size of individuals, strength of individuals. It can depend on alliances. So let's say, and this happens in rhesus macaques, uh, so same-sex, female, female sexual behavior in rhesus macaques can happen as a way to um, bond quickly and form an alliance against other females. But that sounds to me like you're changing the status. And by the way, when you say costly, just so everyone listening, by costly you mean that it's dangerous because they can get beat up or they could risk losing right. resources. It could be a threat to their survival when you say costly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, that's, a, that's great for, for, for pointing that out and defining that. So costly, yeah, picking fights with bigger, stronger individuals that have more friends is much more dangerous than just going ahead and staying in your lane. Um, but for, so females will shake, females can shift these, these dominance hierarchies. They're not necessarily stable for generation after generation. There, there can be shifts. And one of the ways they reduce the individual risk in rhesus macaques, for example, which have a very strong dominant structure among females is they will form a sexual alliance with another female. Oh, hello. Right. And that is to overthrow or reduce uh, competition for resources against other females. Right. So um, they work together and they're, more, they're safer together. That's right. And then they can change the dominant structure of the group. Without thing, fighting, like, though. That doesn't mean that they're then attacking the other females. It just means that they're sticking together. I mean, does it mean they're attacking the other females? Oh, uh, yeah. Usually there'll be fights with another female. Oh, okay. Yeah. So wow. two females can bond with each other and take on another female to and increase their status. Are there, is there uh, evolutionary incentive for them to do so, or is it like ultimately better for their survival and reproduction if they just, as you said, stay in their lane? It depends on what's going on, but, but we see alliance formation for securing additional resources, whether it's partners or territory or food. Um, that is one strategy to reduce cost and gain the benefit uh, and uh, reduce the risk to yourself individually by spreading it out. So lions will do this. You will have coalitions and alliances of multiple males, in that case, overthrowing another male to take over the group of females. And so in a group of rhesus macaques, female dominant structure is very hierarchical. And so two subordinate females might have to join together to change that structure. And it would benefit them to do so because they would get access to more resources, which means their offspring are going to survive. Amazing. Okay. So I, so, and that's really what popularity is about in wild. At the end of the day, it always comes back to the food, the shelter and the survival of offspring. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it in our own culture, right, the popular individuals, the girls, if you, uh, you know, we're sort of built to be mean girls, um, unfortunately, and, 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 and we can overcome that and we can choose differently. And there are more cooperative societies out there, even in other animals, 
But if you go back to your example about the high school, the popular girls, what did those girls get? And what did those girls already have? Usually they already had more resources. Um, Their parents might have had more. They had the better clothes. They drove the better cars. They also had the, you know, a better selection of mates um, because there's a tendency to self-assort according to status. And so you can see this in fraternities and sororities that fraternities and sororities at the same level, they are, they date each other, but a different sorority trying to, you know, a different sorority girl trying to get in at a higher social status is going to pursue a, a, either a male or female at a more popular um, fraternity or sorority. Wow, I never thought uh, of that. And then what's right. funny is then you exit the school system, and yep. when it comes to success and career, things can shift in humans. Um, right? Yes. Um, and that's really interesting because we have a way of sort of taking control of our own status by creating more value in the world, creating a, a successful business, for example. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think that there's been some research that shows – uh, individuals that were bullied at, turn out to be more successful uh, later on in the in the future. But I think if you end up in an office environment, um, especially if you're female and you're trying to get ahead, one of the things that sort of has been a common saying is that female females actually hold females back more in the workplace than males do. It's so interesting. Um, and it's, what's also interesting is this idea of like us as younger creatures, right? These young humans. It's like mm-hmm. where we sort in more of a way closer to what the chimps would sort for, you know, like that's almost like closer to our creature nature. And then we get older and we get jobs and, and, and sort of the life takes its course maybe in a different way. So like you said, the one being bullied could end up, she probably learned way more coping skills, um, became a lot tougher and, right. um, you know, had more, you know, perspectives to offer the world and then was able to become more successful based on that. Potentially, maybe I'm just projecting my own situation. No, the- I know, me too. Um, uh, I, was, I was not one of the popular girls. Um, and I was relentlessly picked on. Um, and so, so, but I think that what's interesting is those, some of those dynamics can change in certain aspects of our lives. But then we find ourselves in relationships where we are, uh, jealous, where we are um, com- uh, competitive with each other, and the way that we dress, and the way that we um, w- females, you know, all this effort we put into our appearance is really not necessarily for the benefit. If you're heterosexual, for the opposite sex, if you're or if you're same sex homosexual to attract the same sex, it's really to compete against each other for for access to that. Yeah, um, there's like, I, I've heard that said, like um, expensive shoes, for example, they're more for your competition with other females than it yes. is about the guy noticing, you know, a pair of high heels will do. Um, but what's so interesting about what you're talking about, especially about relationships later in life, is that for those of us that had girls be really mean to us when we were little, that it comes back later because now we're dating women. Mm. 
And, um, and so it's sort of like healing those wounds, being able to really trust another female, especially, you know, um, when you're giving her power and all, and all these things that could really come up. So it's something that I've been exploring the same way I'm exploring with you about what we can learn from animals. I've been really trying to explore, um, with, uh, professionals who have studied, uh, girl, girl relationships, like, Mm -hmm. you know, in childhood and what we can uh, do to heal ourselves there. So it's, it, it's all coming full circle, which is amazing. Um, and I just want to add to that, 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 you know, there's, there's tension regardless of which, um, sex one wants to pair with because, you know, females also, if they're going to mate with males and some people like both sexes, right? They, they, they are attracted to both, uh, males and females. So the tension there, one, you know, I had never thought about what you are bringing up. There's this tension between your experience with, with other females in your, in your life and through development. And now you're attempting to have these romantic relationships with females and you have to deal with all of that. But the, the flip side is for, for heterosexuals, uh, females attracted to males, we have to overcome the feeling of danger. Oh, um, we still have that. The competition that heterosexual females have with each other, it doesn't drop off just because you're dating women. We're just competing over girls and we are, I mean, we're just competing over other females and we are the females. So I've right. had situations where I've met a you know, I've met someone I was super attracted to and instead of really being open to me, she more treated me like competition and would like put me right. down or like purposely, you know, um, oh, call yeah. me back just to make me feel bad, almost like to make a status play against me in our own situation. Um, and that's right. happened a lot. Um, right. So, right. So, so I, I, I just meant like, you know, we are, and, and all females are at risk from being, um, attacked by males physically. Oh. And so it may not be verbal or teasing or bullying like we experienced from females, but all females have this added tension with their relationship with males. And so for, for heterosexual females, we also, we don't necessarily have to overcome the bullying we might've experienced, uh, from, from, from girls, but we have to overcome that fear of partnering with an individual who is from a gender that we might've experienced physical assault. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, you're right. That's terrifying. Um, so I think we, both, all of us, all females have these, these, these tensions, no matter who we want to, to have a relationship with. Absolutely. So let's jump into female competition. Cause we really, we've, um, we haven't like dove into that. We talked a little bit brushed around it with status, but let, how do females compete with each other? Let's, did we, did we cover everything with that or is there more to say? No, about no. I mean, female competition is fierce and we, we know that from humans, but it's also fierce with other animals and, in many cases, they are competing, uh, like we've talked about, for resources or for mates. And uh, the, the, the confrontations can be violent, uh, physically violent. In humans, we tend to use gossip and uh, ruining the reputation of another female as a, as a way to undermine their, their, their status and to compete with them. I love how you, you have a term for that. You call it derogation of competition or derogation of competitors, right? Is yes. that the word you use? Yes. Yeah. Talk yeah. more about that. Right. So, so in, in our culture, because status is so, and in our society, status is so important. One of the ways to undermine a female without putting yourself at risk physically, right, is to uh, ruin her reputation. 
And so this is one of the primary tools and strategies of females. We use our words <laughs> to compete, right? We say something to someone about another female. I've experienced this even in a work environment um, or uh, if someone was jealous, uh, thinking that I might be moving in on their their partner, whether it's male or female, and you mean like a, a work s- partner. No, no, I mean even a romantic partner. So I've experienced it in one environment at work, and then I've experienced it just in a in personal life where I was friends with someone who uh, was a lesbian, and and I, but I I wasn't attracted to her. I'm just friends with her. But then her partner didn't like that friendship and started, you know, undermining the friendship. Right. Saying mean things about you. And that's actually her form of competition. Very interesting. So I, yes. let's get um, even more like scientific about it. Because we all, we say gossip. We have that experience. You know, everyone mm-hmm. has probably been spoken about. Uh, most of us, if we're honest, have spoken about others. Um, and so what is it, what do we say, like, what's the tone? Like, how do you um, hurt someone's reputation? What is it that we're trying to get at? What are we trying to make them look like? We're trying to make them look bad. We're trying to reduce their value in the eyes of potential romantic competitors or, you know, uh, work competitors. So bad then can be varied culturally, like based on what it is that you value? Absolutely. And then saying you have a lack of the things that we value? There's not like a universal answer to what bad is. No, I mean, again, because humans are so diverse, we have such diversity of cultures. You know, what is bad to an American, usually what in many westernized cultures and, and in many cultures around the world, one thing that is bad is your sexual promiscuity. Hmm. And we see that, right? Oh, the way that she dresses, she's easy. And this is one of it doesn't change from middle school to adulthood. That's still a, a way that we denigrate another female. Right. So calling someone a slut or something, that's, that's pretty right. universal. That's pretty universal. Unless it's you're that, like a courtesan and you're totally respected for your sexuality, for example, maybe. I don't know. Well, right. But that's different. And that's also still very controlled. It wouldn't be just you having sex with whomever you wanted whenever you wanted. Right, only the high-value men or something in one of those empowered-type courtesan situations. That's Um, right. It got caught having sexual relationships with someone else that didn't fit that category. Uh, Another female who wanted your position would use that information to, to basically get you off of that platform so she could take it for herself. Totally. I totally That's what tree swallows do. So tree swallows, I mean, nobody thinks that, you know, tree swallows have this big drama of female violent competition. <laughs> but so tree swallows, you know, nests might be in, in high supply, but partners might not be. And so a female will decide, I want that partner and I want that nest. And they will go in and they will evict sometimes both the, the pair or just the female and throw out all the babies. But how? How does she do it? Just with force? Yeah, physical, yeah. Physical force. Okay, so there we're not talking about gossip, obviously. Is there another sort of animal that would use information in this way where we're sort of fighting with information because we're these, right. like big-brained creatures? Is there any well, <laughs> well, so it's interesting. There's some, we don't know the details yet, so it's hard to say, but there's some indication that dolphins will 
to use the word loosely in this sense, gossip. So there's a, rec- right. there's, there's they say some other's name you said. I think yes. I learned that from you. Yes, talk about this. Yes. So dolphins have a signature whistle. And so each dolphin has a signature whistle. So it's a, akin to a name. And, uh, and, and if you think about people, many people have a distinct voice, right? So you, you know who, you know the difference between different voices. Uh, and some people, like James Earl Jones, you hear his voice, you're like, wow, that's James Earl Jones. Uh, and, and not everybody has such a distinctive voice, but in dolphins, everybody has a signature whistle and it takes a little while for like the calves, the newborns to learn their whistle, uh, and get, you know, their voice changes, but they've been recorded talking to each other about a dolphin that's not there by using the whistle of that dolphin or some identifier. And so we're just on the, we don't know sometimes what animals are talking about. <laughs> okay, so here's, I'm a little, I'm not saying I'm skeptical of this, but my understanding is they have a signature whistle. And the yeah. way that it's signature is because it's unique to them in that they're the only ones who use it. Well, they can, they've been recorded referring to a dolphin that's not there, but because they can say, like I can say your name, but in my my voice. I see. So they're doing they're imi- they're using their own voice to imitate the whistle of the other dolphin. That's the hypothesis, right? And then the, and and the, and that would work like if I'm with you, I would say Dr. Verlin, um and then that's me addressing you and so we were together, but then later I might say to my friend, I interviewed Dr. Verdelin today. That's and right. then that would be me talking about you. Right. And so and that and that would be and your name is your whistle. Right. But, right. So, but how do so, we really know that though? I'm a little skeptical. This is No, so- I, I agree. It's not it's not anything that's been firmly established. There's some indication that that is possible. What we do know is that animals other species, uh so Canada goose, gray lag goose, dolphins, um a number of species of primates, they track social relationships. They know uh, and they track uh, the order and they track who is who and who's with who and who's interacting with who. And so they, the hypothesis is that the value of that is to understand social dynamics is to somehow be able to navigate them and potentially manipulate them so, to your favor. So we are only at the cusp of really being able to, if you will, decode the communication and language that other species use and start to figure out what they're talking about. But it's not out of the realm of possibility that with an animal like a dolphin with such a complex communication system and a very complex social system with very, um, you know, uh, they're tracking hundreds of individuals. Sometimes there's alliances, there's shifting alliances it's not out of the realm of possibility that they are referring to a dolphin that's not present in a communication with each other. Now, yeah, totally, not like there. not for gossip, but to say, like, have you seen mom? Right. And so, so I said, use the word gossip loosely. Like, we know they may be talking about totally. each other. Totally. But we don't know what they're saying. Like, right. we're not saying, oh, did you see Louisa today? She really looks, you know, unwell. Right. Or, or did it like, did mom get the food? 
right. could be right. also what they're saying. So interesting. So at least, but I can totally buy into that, that they're referring to each other. I got lost a little bit on the gossip part of it, but I see what you're saying. It's just that they're talking about each other, which makes total sense. Right. Um, so we talk about each other, our, but our communication style is very, very verbal. It's become more and more verbal than it used to be historically when you think about sort of just the, the time of, of anatomically modern humans about you know, 60,000 years, we rely so heavily on words. Um, and so words are our primary tool for undermining and competing with each other. Whereas other creatures that don't have uh, an extended language would then use more force or they, other yeah. physical strategies. Right. So in, in say, something like uh, rhesus macaque or, or baboons. Again, rhesus macaques, the females will use sexual behavior. Um, in other species, they might use grooming behavior. I spend a lot of time near you. I, you know, I groom you. I do things for you. So it doesn't even have to always be an aggressive thing. I can create alliances and create a circle of, of other individuals that will help me improve my situation. So you know, a lot of times we can be wary of other people, females, because females tend to be the ones to, to use reputation or gossip as a way of improving their status. Um, you know, for me personally, if I, if a female tries to bond with me by insulting another female, I, I don't, I I run (laughs) because it's only a matter of time because she's doing it to you. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And and I know several females who use this as a strategy in new social environments to create a very quick alliance. It's the it's similar to just you know, sexually mounting in rhesus macaques. You may as well have just done that. Right, because you're <laughs> trading information instead of trading sexual favors with another female. Very interesting. That's right. And so That's then right. what did males do to compete? Uh, just real quick, not like... Yeah, no, they're, they're pretty, they, they just fight each other most of the time. <laughs> We're more complex. I remember I was reading, um, a different book, um, by Dr. Franz Duvall. Oh yeah. He, where, um, he was talking about like, exactly like you were saying with the grooming and, um, and like these little slights to each other that then come out later, like they're holding little grudges where men, they just yeah. sort of beat it out right away. The females would hold grudges longer. Oh yeah, no, no, and 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 males either beat up each other or they beat up females. Those are their two primary strategies. Um, and so, as we know, and so yeah, uh, males don't tend to hold grudges like females do. We track, we track uh, on our mates, we track on our our, our social relationships, and uh, are very keenly aware of when we've been wronged, and then we sort of wait for an opportunity to. And some, uh, you know, capuchin monkeys will do that. They will, they will keep score. And then, in fact, in one of his, um, in one of his experiments, you know, but they're pretty immediate. Like if you immediately didn't help me, I immediately won't help you next. I won't keep helping you and then suddenly not help you. And this is between females or like, or are we the only females or the only species that track? I know he was saying chimps or maybe it was bonobos track. I think it was more chimps track it over a long period of time. Are there, yes. are there other females that track these scorekeeping things over extended periods? 
Well, so a lot of species that are cooperative, so vampire bats, for example, um, there are certain rules, and I wrote about this in Wild Connection, the, the sort of tit-for-tat rule. It's like, okay, I help you, you help me, I help you, you defect, you meaning you don't help me. Now I have two choices. I can, next time we interact with each other, I can retaliate, right, and not help you. And then you would retaliate and not help me, and now we suddenly have no relationship. And that could happen over a very long period of time, like months later even, or are we talking about like the next day? No, that could happen immediately, but what tends to happen is there's a sort of first forgiveness. Okay, I forgive you, but I don't forget. We know that saying, right? I forgive you, but I haven't forgotten that you did this. And so now we have these positive interactions again and okay, okay, I reciprocate. It's even, then you suddenly don't help me again. And I'm like, Hmm, okay. I maybe give another forgiveness, but I haven't forgotten. And it starts to build up and then it gets to a point where the bat is recognized as a bat that doesn't share resources with other bats when they go hungry. So therefore, the next time that bat's hungry, the non-sharing bat. And now it's a reputation. It wasn't just a one-time incident. That's now right. it's like a reputation. This is just who you are now. So they that's become right. identified and it, and, with it. That's right. And you can get, animals can get reputations in their communities. Wow. Animals <laughs> can get reputations yes. in their communities. Wow. And what's interesting, too, is they don't get it by gossip. They get it from their own bad behavior. So that's um, exactly right. And that's where I think um, other animals have a leg up on us. They base their decisions on their experience with an individual. Right. They're less easily manipulated. And there are a bunch of things that that there was something else. The humans are the only species to do a lot of things like with this misinformation, misleading, like our over reliance on information gets us in trouble sometimes because you were talking about how they're like we we um with our long-term mates, like humans will lie to their long-term mates, but there's no evolutionary incentive for any other creature to do that in nature. No. What for? Because the whole premise is to be a cooperative union. So why, how, why would you be undermining your cooperative partner? That makes no sense. Now, I would then, and I talk about this as well, you know, I think sometimes not all of us are made or built to choose a truly monogamous cooperative relationship. That may not be what we want, but societally, culturally, and and even from a religious point of view, we've been uh, um, indoctrinated in the idea that a a, a long-term monogamous relationship is the only kind of relationship we should have. Right. And based on, and so, and what makes, what are some behaviors that make you think that maybe humans aren't necessarily evolved to be purely monogamous? Well, I mean, you have um, polyamory, you have harems, um, it's very culturally diverse. So if you look at all the cultures around the world, and not just westernized cultures, but all of them, there are at least 50 cultures in the Tibetan Plateau region and some um, in, the, in the Arctic Circle where females have multiple husbands. Right, which you said was about um, there being less resources, you need more men more men's help to raise one child, even if it's not their right. own. That's right. And, and so, so there are different reasons for why you can get different types of mating systems in animals, um, in other animals, and in humans. And now in, in, in um, a, a recent um, book, that I, a parenting book, but it's relevant here, there's the Curia tribe, is, uh, there's a tradition called the House of Women, 
where a woman who is widowed or whose husband has left her is permitted to marry a younger woman so that she can retain the family home. And the younger female has equal rights to the property and is allowed to take a male partner to produce children. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So the older woman can marry, her husband dies, so she marries a younger woman? So that she has a wife. So she gets a wife, and the, the wife is a younger woman, and that younger woman has equal rights to the house, the property, and is permitted by her wife to take a male partner so that she can make children. And then the female couple will raise the children together. Amazing. Uh, and this has actually been increasing lately in response um, to women in this tribe being mistreated by men. And so they marry each other and each female increases her resource base. And by cooperatively raising children, the children benefit. So they're basically saying we will use men for sperm. I, I this is so interesting. Now, I have a, a very maybe politically incorrect question. Um, let's just say we, we go to these, like, we talk about these places all over the world where it seems as though the environment, right? We talked about the tribes near India or Tibet where um, women mm-hmm. have multiple males raising a child, right? Um, right? And then other parts of the world where there might be one man has multiple females because maybe right. males have more access to resources. Let's just say then 10,000 years go by and people don't have like American Airlines or whatever, Delta, like there's right. not planes flying all over the road. Just imagine they're staying put. Would then right. the children of the men, like the male children of the male harem societies, would they be more likely to have like an internal desire to have more? And whereas like the females right. would then, those females would be more likely to want multiple partners. I mean, is this an evolutionary thing? Is this, or is that, are we humans like too um, newly evolved to have like uh, gotten those? I don't know. Do you understand my question? Yeah. Well, there is some genetic disposition to monogamy. So I want to, I want to establish that there's some research coming out that shows that um, individuals with higher, there's a hormone vasopressin and um, individuals with higher levels of vasopressin tend to be more monogamous. So I think we have a couple things going on. What, what the environment, how the environment has shaped mating structures or, or mating systems um, may or may not continue to apply in, in contemporary society. Right? So you can evolve a certain behavior and that behavior can persist even though conditions have changed because one of the things that humans have done is they've built entire cultures and religions around what might have initially been a mating system that made sense for the environment that they were in. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And maybe in the future, what you're saying is that humans who have a brain that's more receptive to vasopressin um, it, it, that would make you more monogamous. So the ones that have more vasopressin and vasopressin receptors stay monogamous with each other, whereas low vasopressin humans would want right. to sort for their more, like they could be the ones involved in polyamory, for example. Well, right. Or, and so there might be some relationship there. We're only starting to get a grip on uh, behavioral genetics. But um, but that's not to say that just because you have a gene for one thing, you that makes you act exactly a certain way. I think the take-home message that I, I want people to have is that there's a lot of variation. You know, so I might be very monogamous, but only under the right conditions. So I'm not particularly attached to monogamy if my needs aren't being met or if the relationship isn't of a certain quality. 
Um, whereas other people just find it really hard to be monogamous and not because they don't love the person that they're with, but they just, they just really like being with lots of different people. And I think we have a society and we've created a society that shames people. And so they're not honest. And we started this with, why would you lie to your partner? We create a situation by having this demand that everybody feels exactly the same way or at least acts like it. And, and, and this has happened even when, you know, uh, for, for women, for, and even into this day, you know, anybody from the LGBT, is it LGBTQ? It changes all the time. I'm not offended. Uh, okay. Whatever, whatever it is, I don't even know. I don't know how to even answer that. Anybody on the spectrum of sexuality, um, if it hasn't been a, a, a heterosexual monogamous pairing, has been subjected to uh, shame and uh, being told they need to be a certain way, they need to act a certain way. And I think in doing that, we've created a system where we have to be deceptive because we might not be, uh, we might think we can't be with someone if we're just honest. Um, and we can't live in a society where we can just be what we are. Now, we're starting to see that change in all kinds of ways. You brought up polyamory. There is, uh, you know, there's still legal obstacles to being married to multiple people um, at, at one time. Uh, polygamy um, is, is uh, and polyamory, you can have those setups with everybody agreeing. But that's the thing. It's transparent and it's honest. So I would say that we have these cultural and societal and religious norms that force individuals to be deceptive to their partner. And instead of choosing a partner based on compatibility of all of those values. And our, we're so ingrained in our culture that we might not even know what we might have wanted if we were just creatures born into this particular, the conditions that we're in. Um, right. A lot of it is shaped on ideas given to us based on rules that were set uh, based on a condition of a very particular time and place. That's um, right. And then you're, you're raised through your entire development and, and as you're identifying it yourself to, and you're told all of these things and uh, I think that how, how would the world change and how would relationships change if you, you meet somebody and you have that conversation and you say, you know what, I'm really not a big fan of monogamy. I don't like it. I'm not going to be monogamous. You can choose whether or not you want to be in a relationship. And I don't demand you be monogamous. Totally, to, yeah. Or, right? and there, and nor do I demand that you be with me. If you're someone who needs monogamy, you're welcome to have, like, I'm a very monogamous person. So right. I, you know, this is it, um, you know, but I can totally, just the same way that I know that I'm homosexual. So I understand most females are not homosexual. Like I can see that I could be a monog, like crave monogamy, but yet that other people could crave all kinds of other things. Like I, I totally get that's, right. that's totally possible. I don't say like, no, that can't be. Right. Um, right. You know. And I think that, that we cause a lot of, of trouble for each other in our relationships because you may say that you may be able to say that and you may be able to accept that and you may be able to understand that. But I think that very few people either know that about themselves, accept that about themselves or are willing to state that about themselves. Yeah, because of fear they wouldn't, you know. And the truth is, you know, some people are manipulative, right? Because maybe if I'm, you know, if I'm interested in someone and um, I, I prefer multiple partners and she only wants multiple, she only wants to be with me, I can maybe pretend that I'm only going to be with her, but ultimately right. then I'll leave her, which is also, that's not cool. You know, if you're going to 
be open to a lot of partners, at least just go find other people who are on your same page. That way nobody gets hurt, you know, I think. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and other animals do that. You know, barnacle geese will date for a few weeks. And I've always wanted to know why they break up. I don't know. But, <laughs> they, but they'll date a, another goose. Um, and their dating looks like they just spend all their time together, you know, for a few weeks. And then sometimes, you know, right out of the gate, they found their match and they're, they form a, a lifelong partnership. And to the point where if a, if a goose, uh, if one goose is killed, the, the mate will maybe stay by the body and, and, and die themselves. Oh my um, God. swans also have been known to die of grief when their, when their mate died. Um, and this is in heterosexual or homosexual pairings in swans. Swans and have so, homosexual pairings? Oh, yeah. About and a third they of, die for each other when, they, when one dies? That's so romantic. I, I know, right? <laughs> but black swans um, and swans in general aren't the most monogamous, so oops. Uh, maybe don't send a Valentine's Day card with a swan on it. Right. Oh, I remember you saying that. That's really funny. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely loving this conversation, but I want to be mindful of your time. I think you said yes. you had to jump off. I mean, at, at, at 11, so that's now for you. Well, eleven ten. So we can we can maybe um, okay, just kind cool. Of yeah, wrap it up. I, conclusion. I yeah. wanted to just give you an opportunity to tell listeners where they can find you, what you're working on that you're excited about. Um, yeah, great. So uh, you can find me. My website is uh, www.jenniferverdolin.com, and that's V E R D O L I N. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Real Doctor Jen. And I recently just, if you're interested in pairing and I actually talk, uh, in parenting, um, and I actually spend some time, uh, talking about same sex couples and family dynamics in this book. I just put out another book raised by animals, which, uh, came out in May of, of 2017. And you can find that on, uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of the indie bookstores online and, and in stores also carry it. And, uh, I just, I hope that that people uh, can feel like they got something out of this, and I know, you know I did. I, you know. That's great, yeah. and I would love to even talk about parenting sometime. Maybe yeah, we can- let's have another conversation. Let me read "Raised by Animals" because I and I have to say, "Wild Connection" is awesome. Um, it's such a delightful, hysterical book. You had me cracking up. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and um, like, I just, I absolutely loved it. But um, I definitely let's let's get let's have another conversation about "Raised by Animals" soon. Um, and just for. For a while, connection. I'm I'm glad I had you laughing. I, I'm my misadventures in dating <laughs> are, are entertainment for for the masses. I'm I'm happy to provide. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great book, and I think um, you don't have to be heterosexual to enjoy it. I loved every minute of it. So, and I'm so grateful. I've always loved listening to your podcast. It's been such a pleasure having you on this one. It's so funny because when we started, like you're supposed to do like a hey, let's like have a few minute conversation before we start. But right. the minute you got on the podcast, like it was just we just jumped right into this awesome conversation that I've been so excited to have so um, thank you it's just it's been, been so great to finally talk to you and I'm so grateful that you joined and I can't wait for our next conversation well I am I am so grateful too for having the opportunity to talk with you and to talk about all of these different types of dynamics and and be able to get people interested or excited in how we can learn from animals to improve our relationships with each other. Yeah. And respect them because animals are the cutest and the best. So, um, all right. So we'll talk soon when I read raised by animals, we'll get back in touch and I'm so excited. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Verdolin. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you want more amazing free resources that will help you develop more self-confidence and help you make yourself more attractive to the women you desire, then go to jordanamichelle.com where you will find some of my best secrets all for free, including the ultimate guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life forever, a quiz that will tell you what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you finally meet her, a quick guide to the five biggest mistakes that lesbians make when coming out, a quiz that will tell you what kind of TV series your coming out story would be made into if they made one, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out so that I can keep you in mind in case I happen to know or meet a perfect match for you. So go find my survey and tell me about yourself so that I can help you find love. All of this is free on jordanamichelle.com. And don't forget to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook so I can learn more about you and what you're up to in the world. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Women Wanting Women. <laughs>